Hey, good morning. Thank you. Yeah, it is, it is so good to be here. I am so honored by the invitation. I have loved meeting your staff. You have some amazing folk who are making this place run. Um, Pastor Chad Hovind, rock star. Uh, the amazingly efficient Carrie Claussen. When she's done organizing your world, I'm going to make her come organize mine. Um, you guys have got a lot going on here, and it, it's, it's just awesome to meet you. So, in my attempts to get to know you before my visit, I've spent some quality time on your website. Very nice website, by the way. Um, and I've been watching you all work your way through the book of Numbers. Ten months in the book of Numbers. Uh, can I say, Pastor Chad, that I am like a professional Old Testament teacher. It's like what I do for a living. It's where my PhD is. You know, been doing this for a while and never in my life have I been able to convince an audience to sit through the book of Numbers for 10 months. <laughs> so clearly a rock star. Um, there must be something you guys are putting out in that coffee out there, and I'm going to need to take some back with me. So um, I have been watching, and in watching, I've seen you pass through the wilderness of Sinai in preparation, the wilderness of Paran testing, and the wilderness of temptation designed to keep our heroes from uh, their calling to occupy the promised land. And finally, Numbers 33, where our people reach the plains of Moab. Whew, it has been a long ride, but we are here. We can finally say to the people in the back, se back seat, yes, we're here yet, right here, right now. This is the moment. And as your pastor said, it is now time for our heroes to shift their faith into four-wheel drive because all that preparation, testing, and temptation, those 40 years of transformation, well, we're here. But of course, exactly where is here? Well, y'all know the story. 40 years brought our people from the slave villages of the land of Goshen to the covenant-making moment at Sinai to the southern boundary of the Promised Land, then back to Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness. And finally, when they had circled that mountain long enough around the bottom of the Dead Sea, up the King's Highway, a couple of successful battles, and at last they land on the plains of Moab, looking over the river at their first real target, the city of Jericho. Now are you ready for the close-up? Okay, let's see if Sam and I can do this. So our people come up from the land of uh, Egypt, and they come up against the southern end of the promised land. We're doing good. We land in Kadesh Barnea, and the command is to head in, right? So we head into the promised land from the southern border, but you know the story. Ten of the spies came back saying, oh no, the Canaanites are too big. We can't do this. And two of them are like, hey, didn't he just take out Pharaoh? I think maybe he can handle a few Canaanites. So our guys are run out of the Southland, and Yahweh says, I think you need a little more sanctification going on here. So 38 and a half years of sanctification. You thought you had it rough? Yeah. And in those years, God is transforming our people. He's making them who, into who he needs them to be. 
And then finally, the instructions. You've circled this mountain long enough. Jump on the king's highway. Head up through Edom, Moab, and Ammon, and then engage. Sion of the Amorites, Og of Bashan, and our guys finally start winning. They transform this territory into Israelite territory. Reuben, Gad, Manasseh settle down, and then our guys circle back and land right there on the plains of Moab. This is where here is. And getting here was what this whole road trip has been about. Because here is where the calling actually begins. Here is where we cross the river and throw ourselves, heart, body, mind, soul, and spirit into the fight of our lives to win the promised land. Or to put it differently, to occupy previously enemy territory with the kingdom of God. So, all that 40-year thing in the wilderness, what was that about? Well, folks, according to the sociologists, this is what you call liminal space. Hmm. What is liminal space? Well, limen comes from the Latin. It means threshold. It is a physical space characterized by transition. And in so many ways, our Israelites are standing right there on the threshold. What is behind them is who they were. What is in front of them is who they want to be. Think in terms of a rite of passage. What those four years are to uh, the average college student. Or if you're more familiar with your boot camp self, that would be your civilian enlisted self being transformed into an actual enlisted man, or residencies for the medical docs among us, or for those who've recently said yes, that is what engagement is all about. And in each of these liminal spaces, the goal is preparation, transformation for the new life that stands on the other side. And each of these liminal journeys also has a ritual moment of transition. We still do this today. So that college undergrad will be robed in school colors, ritual garb, walk across the stage, and the chief academic officer will hand up a off a diploma. Liminal space concluded. Or that young recruit will button up the dress blues for the first time, march in with their battalion, and the commanding officer will declare them, um, I, uh, declare them that moment of being truly an officer. I have a quote here, basically trained, smartly disciplined, tough and courageous with a mindset and identity of a warrior. That one comes from the Navy website. And of course, that very expensive flower-strewn occasion when a previously unattached young man and woman are also ritually attired and a holy man or woman confers upon them the title of husband and wife. That's liminal space concluded. Interesting, liminal space is typically marked by conflicting emotions. Excitement, I'm getting married. Anxiety, what the heck have I done? Hope, I'm going to be a Marine. Despair, I'm never going to get through boot camp. Or... Uh, insecurity, I'm going to flunk out. 
or that wave of unrealistic young adult self-confidence. Sure, I can carry 28 units, work a job, and volunteer for every extracurricular out activity out there. I'm very familiar with that one. Um, liminal space also uh, has to do with having more than one identity. Sometimes you're pushing away from the identity you're leaving behind and you are pushing toward the identity that you're longing for. So belonging to more than one community, trying to figure out where I go now. So for the Israelites, this is what the book of Numbers was all about. They are no longer slaves in Egypt, but they are not yet residents of the promised land. Just like boot camp or college, this journey has transformed them in every arena of their lives, from how and where they eat and sleep to their personal and national identity. They are different than they were before, as they must be. Because to actually cross the threshold, well, this is not just an abstract concept for them. These 40 long years had an objective, a goal, a desperately critical mission, and that is to establish the kingdom of God in the land of Canaan. So when we open up the book of Deuteronomy, that's where here is. We're here now at the edge of liminal space. We are standing there on the plains of Moab. Our heroes are no longer in the wilderness, but they are not yet in the land of promise. They're excited and they're terrified. This is a threshold of all thresholds. And Moses, their mentor, their coach, he has worked for 40 years to get these folks to this moment. He has trained, coached, redirected. He's got a good team and he thinks they're ready for the next level. But are they really? Now, as the quote on the screen says, there is a lot going on in the book of Deuteronomy. In my classes, I will often speak of the book as a law code tucked inside a narrative staged as a speech and formatted as a covenant. And maybe if we get to do some serious Deuteronomy work together, we'll, we'll dive into all of that. But from a narrative perspective, our man Moses has got two things on his mind. The first is what I like to call the last boyfriend speech. Now, you will not find that in the Nycote commentary. Maybe when mine comes out, I'll, I'll put it in there. Um, and the second is how in the world am I going to get these people who I have loved with my life across the finish line? So let's start with the last boyfriend speech. Um, you might be wondering what that is. Uh, do you all have daughters? Show of hands, a few daughters in the crowd. Okay, then you know all about the last boyfriend speech. It, it's all about cars, curfews, and kissing, right? Cars, curfews, kissing. I know that kissing starts with a K, but in the words of Larry the Cucumber, it had to rhyme. Okay, so I have got two perfect, beautiful, talented, smart, stubborn, high-maintenance girls. 
I adore them. One is a sophomore in college, the other one is a junior in high school, and in my house, dating doesn't begin until the age of 16. This has worked out okay for me. But the boyfriend speech, well, I like to get a jump on these things, so I probably started at about eight. <laughs> um, and in giving the boyfriend speech, I have given it many times. So how does that relate to Moses in the plains of Moab? Well, here's the point. Although I have been giving that boyfriend speech for quite some time, um, when that first audacious young man pulled up to my front door in his oh-so-hot car with his perfect hair, you know, on that yes ma'am, no sir, shaking our hands thing, hmm, yeah. Do you think I actually let my girl out the door without giving her that boyfriend speech one more time? No, heck no. So 20 minutes before that beautiful young man arrived, I'm sure he's fine, yeah, um, we were back in it doing cars, curfew, and kissing just one more time. That was the last boyfriend speech. So that's what Moses is doing in the book of Deuteronomy. He has been preaching and lecturing and coaching these people for 40 years on how to succeed in the promised land. But there is no way he's letting them out the door without running through it one more time. So what he's going to do is, in chapters 1 through 5, he's going to remind them who he is and who they are. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's who I am. You you are the children of the Exodus. You've been rescued from the iron furnace of Egypt. You are beloved and you are bound by covenant. So whatever faces you on the other side of that river, remember who you are. Then chapter 6. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land and gives you great and splendid cities that you didn't build, houses full of good things that you didn't buy, hewn cisterns that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant, Watch yourself. Watch lest you forget that it was Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And when you cross that river, remember where you came from. Chapter 7, when Yahweh your God brings you into the land, he will clear away the nations that were there before you. The Hittite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. That was my PhD was about, so I could say those names with all that confidence, yeah? Okay, these nations are bigger than stronger than you. In other words, no, they actually are better than you. Well, we're not making this up. They are better than you. But I will clear them out from before you. But you be careful. Don't make treaties with them. Don't ally with them. Don't intermarry with them. Because if you do, you're going to wind up just like them. In other words, when God makes you successful and you finally get past that glass ceiling and become the insider and the influencer, don't join the club. Remember whose you are. Deuteronomy 8, when your herds and your flocks multiply, more and more money comes in and the standard of living goes up and up, make sure you don't become so full of yourself and your stuff that you forget your God who brought you out of the land and Egypt. He is the one who brought you through this great and terrible wilderness. Remember that God, your God, gave you 
the strength to produce all this wealth. And then Moses concludes with likely the most famous hortatory line of all time. That's a fancy word for preaching. The greatest altar call line of all time. And that is, I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. When you cross this Jordan, choose life. Choose life. I can hear his voice breaking and do it today before all the distractions to come drown out the side, sound of my words. Okay, last boyfriend's speech complete. Moses can check off that box. But now, how do I get these people to cross the line? How do I get them to take that step? Now, I want to remind you in and perhaps tell you for the first time that the book of Deuteronomy is actually Moses' last sermon. And he has been in the pulpit for a very long time. It's actually his last communique of any sort. The book opens with what appears to be a fairly banal time signature. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. Now, I, if you're anything like me, you read these type of time signatures and you kind of blast past them, right? Let, let's get to the storyline. But here's the deal. When you do the math, you realize that this 34-chapter sermon we know as the book of Deuteronomy was delivered on the very last day of the last month of Moses' life. After decades of shepherding this motley crew on his very last day of the planet, this man has one last word to offer. To put it in the words of Eugene Peterson, Deuteronomy is a sermon, actually a series of sermons. It's the longest sermon in the Bible and maybe the longest sermon of all time. Deuteronomy presents Moses standing on the plains of Moab with all of Israel assembled before him preaching. It is his last sermon. And when he completes it, he will leave his pulpit on the plains, climb a mountain, and die. Talk about rhetorical impact. Come on. If you want someone to listen to what you have to say, drop dead right after you say it. Good move, Moses. Everything about this book shouts, listen to me. Hear, O Israel. Because last words are important. We don't need the book of Deuteronomy to tell us that. Last words are when we make sure that those we love know that they're cherished. They're when we make sure that those we've taught have caught our most important points. Last words are when we make arrangements for the well-being of those we're leaving and when we empower them to go forward without us. All these things will happen in the book of Deuteronomy. Last words are when new leaders are commissioned. And last words are when we say that one thing, that if we never get to say anything else, this is the thing that has to get said. This is the book of Deuteronomy. And these are Moses' last words. So where does he start? Well, as we've rehearsed, he tells them their story. 
So we departed from Horeb, which is another word for Sinai, and we went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea. That didn't go well. And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. We're here. Go up and possess it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. And do not fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Don't be terrified, depending on which translation you pick up. And what you will find as you read this book is do not fear, do not be discouraged, do not be terrified is a really big theme in the book of Deuteronomy. And you can probably guess why. What they are about to do is stinking hard. What they are about to do is bigger than they are. I want to pause over that. What they are about to do is bigger than they are. All the planning in the world is not going to change that. Yes, we've made it to the promised land. Woohoo! The journey is over. The liminal space concluded. Now look what you get to do. That's going to be the conquest. Folks, we are dealing with a field-trained militia with a mass of civilians in the mix. If we have any military folk in here, the last thing you want is a mass of civilians in the mix. They have had very little experience. They have less equipment. They've won two, count them, two battles. They have absolutely no siege artillery or battering rams. Larry the Cucumber, Josh in the Big Wall, did someone bring the Terminator 2000? I don't think so. No, our folks are completely outclassed when it comes to the type of warfare that lies ahead of them, which is going to have to be siege warfare. According to Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 5, all of these cities were fortified with high walls and gates and bars, besides a great many rural towns. Let me tell you that Deuteronomy is not exaggerating. All of the archaeology agrees. You are looking at the mound of Megiddo, one of the most major cities in the Holy Land. The overlay shows you the reconstruction based on the archaeology of this site. And you are looking at classic Middle Bronze Age, dry moat, earthen rampart, mud brick wall fortifications. They are so impenetrable that they don't even need to build fortifications in the Late Bronze Age because the Middle Bronze Age fortifications are still standing strong. Now you're looking at a reconstruction of a similar gate, this one coming from Gezer, from the front and from the top. Guys, from the perspective of military strategy, our team is completely out of their depth. Outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. And this is where the hard stuff really gets going. Still, in that setting, the call of God was to step across the line. Cross the river, pull the trigger, or as my labor nurse once told me, take a breath, tuck your chin, and push. And in doing so, that although they weren't big enough to handle it, having confidence that God was. Standing here, oh, I don't know, 3,000 years later, we're like, well, of course, Israelites, come on, get on board. Hmm, 
Wonder how we would feel standing in the crowd. So then I said to them, do not be terrified or afraid of them. Same theme, repeat. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where Yahweh your God is going before you and he himself will fight on your behalf. I recite those words, I sing those words. Do I believe those words? Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how Yahweh your God carried you. Just as a man carries his son, or perhaps my husband carries our daughter. Everywhere that you have gone until you've come to this place, I've got you, is what Yahweh is telling his people. So this is the moment. This is the challenge. Will Israel trust what they've come to know of their God? Will they rehearse the story in their hearts and encourage step forward? Or will they trust their own fear? Hmm, I want to say that again. Trust my own fear. Will they claim the inheritance that he has laid before them? Or is it easier to just walk away? And as we consider Israel's physical space, not quite out of the wilderness, not quite in the promised land, would it be that hard to just kind of turn and walk away? You know, to go back to that pastoral nomadic lifestyle they've been enjoying for the last 40 years. Identify the wilderness as the place that they go. To say, you know, we've come far enough. This is good. Yeah, this is good. We, we've done some good stuff right here. I, I don't need to go any further. It was a great idea. A great idea for some people. But is it really necessary to go all the way into the promised land? Because it's kind of more comfortable right here. This is the challenge of Deuteronomy and everything that has gone before has brought our heroes here. Ten months of pretty phenomenal preaching has brought you right here. But guys, all of that preparation had a purpose. There were things to learn, bad habits to break, commitments that needed to be clarified, a God that they needed to get to know. But the objective has always been to equip this mixed multitude to conquer Canaan, to build the kingdom of God in previously enemy territory. Now, you and I both know the story. Moses is going to do it. He is the executive coach of all executive coaches. It will literally cost him his life. But when that 120-year-old faithful servant of the Most High trudges up Mount Nebo, a lot of people think he's going to go die and be buried. I think it's a witness protection plan. Because after dealing with this group for 40 years, somewhere in Jamaica. Okay, sorry, that was an aside. This last time, the people who are standing behind him were ready to take a hold of their calling with both hands. To cross the river, to use every trick in the book to engage the Canaanites, and how much fun it would be to teach you about how they cheated their way into the promised land, and by the strength and the faithfulness and the I will never leave or forsake you power of Yahweh, they win. And according to every archaeologist out there, the Iron One Age is marked with the influx of a whole new people group who we call the Israelites. One small step for our team, one giant leap forward in the great story of redemption. 
Do they do it perfectly? No. Do they stumble? Oh, yeah. Do they mess up the plan of God on a regular basis? But the job gets done because they pulled the trigger, because they crossed the line. Now let me catapult you forward to another moment of great things and another set of last words and another ragtag band that stands just outside their inheritance. They are also scared to death. And like the Israelites, they are losing the only leader they've ever known and looking at their calling that is way bigger than they are. This event happens 40 days after the resurrection. And the scene is another mountain, this time an unnamed mountain somewhere in Galilee. And the group gathered is likely not a group that any Fortune 500 recruiting firm would go, oh yeah, we want those 12. Yeah. As their leader stands before them, telling them they've been trained, prepared, practiced. You don't realize it, but you're ready. He's about to say his last words. And I anticipate that the emotions registering on that hill in Galilee are probably very similar to the emotions registering on the plains of Moab. And what does this resurrected first century rabbi tell them? He tells them that there is a new promised land to possess. That all this preparation was not simply for their own edification, that there was a task to do. There were cities to be taken, powers and principalities that needed to be dispossessed. That once again, there was territory that needed to be won for the kingdom. But this time, the victory would not be won on the battlefield. This time, the victory would be won in the hearts and minds of an unconverted world. And Jesus asks his little flock the same question that Moses asked his. Will you trust what you know of your God, what you have seen with your own eyes when we were together in the wilderness? And based on this confidence, will you step forward and claim the inheritance prepared for you? Or is it easier to just walk away? And so we turn to Matthew chapter 28, the last paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew. And can I tell you that while Matthew was writing Matthew, he didn't actually know that there was going to be a Mark, Luke, and John in the final release publication. So as far as he knows, he is not simply writing the last paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew. He's writing the last paragraph of the story of Jesus. And like Deuteronomy, Matthew is concluding with Jesus' last words. And when Jesus is done, He's going to be lifted up into the heavens. He's going to disappear in the clouds. Talk about rhetorical impact. Yes, last words are important. When we say that one thing, that if we could never say anything else, we get that one thing said. What would you say? What will I say? when Jesus finally calls me home and I have to say goodbye to my girls? What would I want them to know if I only had one hour left with them? Hmm. In the book of Deuteronomy and here in the Gospel of Matthew, 
Moses and Jesus are both grappling with these same questions. This is the last goodbye. And for Jesus, these are his best friends. These men have come to be closer than brothers. Well, let me rephrase that. Eleven of these men have come to be closer than brothers. One of them has already decided that the price is too high and has turned and walked away. They've spent three years living in each other's back pockets. They have eaten the same stale rations from the bottom of the same dirty knapsack. They have walked from Dan to Beersheba. They have run from mobs. They have trudged through the rain. They have challenged the rabbis. They have watched the lame walk and the blind see. They have lived through the meteoric rise and fall of the first century Jesus movement together. And they've left their families and their jobs for the sake of the same cause. And here, standing alone, just the 12 of them, on this mountain in the north of Galilee, it's time to say goodbye. And can I say that our guys are probably a little beaten up at this point in time. It's been a really rough month. There was that whole crucifixion thing. There was that whole resurrection thing. There was Mary running to tell them, no, no, he's alive, he wants to see you in Galilee. And there was the torn, open hearts of 11 of his best friends who watched the crushing corruption of the Roman Empire and their own religious leaders rip him out of their hands. And they watched him die. Okay, so our guys are a little raw. And the Bible tells us that they answered the call. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Okay, no surprise. Worn out, burned out, broken but hoping, reeling from the impossible emotions of the death and rebirth of a dream. And in my mind, Jesus, like Moses, sees all of this in the face of his men. They're closer to him than brothers, and in some ways, I think that Jesus' heart is breaking the way mine will be when I have to say goodbye to my girls as well. But also, like Moses, Jesus knows what he needs from these 11 frightened young men. Just like on the plains of Moab, the hope of the kingdom rests on their shoulders. And they don't think they're big enough to handle it. So what words can Jesus speak that will empower these 11 men to pull the trigger, cross the line, and get out there and change the world? How, how do you do that in one paragraph? Like Moses, Jesus is going to need the power of their past and the hope of their future. So Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. First of all, that's hard to believe. But second of all, let's ask the question, on what basis? Well, he just conquered death. Okay, revoke the curse. He's the firstborn from the dead. So on that platform, he continues. 
Go there for, cross the river, and make disciples of all the nations. Conquer the Canaanites, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Make them mine, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, all the words of this law. Because this is how the kingdom will be built. Don't be terrified. Don't be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you. According to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord carried you as a father carries his child in all the way that you went until you came to this place. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or as Peterson translates, I'll be with you as you do this, day after day after day after day, right up to the end of the age. So, so do you see it? Do, do, do you see it? The children of Israel and that little band clustered on the side of that unnamed mountain in Galilee, they're thinking pretty much the same thing. And so are we. They're thinking, me? Us? Outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned? These guys are short on resources and experience. How will these very average people build the kingdom of God in previously occupied enemy territory? And wouldn't it just be easier to head back into the wilderness? Not that far out. You know, but far enough out that we don't really irritate the Canaanites so that they don't come after us. Wouldn't it be easier to just walk away? Deuteronomy is that moment when Moses looks into the eyes of his people and he says, the kingdom of God is in your hands. I have to go. Don't let me down. The Gospel of Matthew is all about that moment when Jesus looks into the eyes of his people and said, the kingdom of God is in your hands. I have to go. Don't let me down. So what does all this mean for us? What does this mean for Horizon Community Church? Well, folks, I can't believe that 10 months in the wilderness accompanying Israel through their liminal space was some sort of cosmic accident. When the children of Israel finally reached the plains of Moab, they were ready. Scared, yes, but ready. Out-resourced, yes. Thinking about surrendering, yes. Wanting to keep life comfortable, Absolutely. When the disciples reached the mountain of Galilee, they didn't think they were ready either. They didn't think they could ever do greater things than their rabbi. Most of them hadn't ever been outside their country. How about us? Ten months in the wilderness. Ten months of preparation. Folks, just like Israel, we disciples of the new covenant have been handed a commission that is bigger than we are. That's a given. It's bigger than we are. 
but we have also been promised his ever-abiding presence and very real power. But here's the other problem. Your God will never make you do anything. He will not force you across the line. We have to do that. We have to pull the trigger. We have to step across the line. We have to believe that the God who defeated Pharaoh can conquer Canaan. And the Lord of life who conquered the grave can conquer Cincinnati. Is there anyone out there who's with me? Yeah. Last words are important. And right here, right now, on September 25th, our sovereign Lord is speaking to all of us. Will you trust what you've come to know of your God during the 40 years of liminal space? Will you rehearse the story in your hearts and encourage step, encourage step forward? Will you claim the inheritance that's been prepared for you and your family and your church and your community? Or will you walk away? Let me pray for you. Father God, these are heavy words. And we stand before you frightened and convicted. Lord, I want to pray for every heart that's in this room. And that line that is standing in front of us, that river that needs to get crossed, that inheritance that we know you want us to claim. And Father God, firstborn from the dead, Lord of the cosmos, will you instill in us the I am never going to let you down courage of a Christian who knows their God? And will you lead us across that river? And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.